Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station, right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. And you can listen to this with earphones if you like, or through your radio, through speakers, or any way you like. This is the Bureau of Lost Culture. I'm Stephen Coates. There's nothing we like better at the Bureau than to dig up a story from the past, unearth it, excavate it, revivify it, bring it into the light and shake it down. We love stories, testimonies from the other side, from the counterculture, stories of obsolete, strange technology. And this episode has a bit of all that stuff, long before you could just press a button on your iPhone or your computer or in Zoom and record your voice. You could walk into a department store or a railway station or perhaps at the end of a pier and enter a strange-looking booth, somewhat like one of those passport photo booths or a telephone box. And you could put some money in and you could record your voice and make a record in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, up until the 70s, I think. You just heard an example of how to do it at the beginning of the programme. It was a wonderful thing because people got the chance for the first time to hear their own voice, to make a record. How special is that still to this day? It's an obsolete technology and who better to join us to tell that story than our guest on this particular programme of the Bureau of Lost Culture. I was there with my friend and collaborator Paul Hartfield and we invited in Alan Dean, BBC radio producer, who's made many wonderful documentaries. And, most importantly, for the purposes of this episode of the Brew of Lost Culture, he is the expert on the self-made record. So, let's take it away. Hello, Alan. Hello, Stephen. Am I an expert? I'm passionate, and I've been following and exploring the story of these discs. And you're absolutely right. What's so incredible about this area of music history is that really it dropped out it dropped through the cracks of history Mm. we don't know much about it we are now still trying to find out exactly what went on particularly in the non-commercial world of recording music right so if i said to you what is a self-made record i mean i use that phrase self-made rather than homemade maybe you could just tell us what it is we heard a little bit of an instruction there at the beginning from your collection didn't we? yeah that, well that one is from the 1930s and that was the beginning of what we'd call the coin operated machine so that really started in conjunction with the amusement and entertainment industry just like today we have photo booths and um, which we're all familiar with getting a picture taken in the booth 
in the old days, you could make a record in a booth. Actually, in the 1930s, they weren't booths. They looked more like a skyscraper, and you stood <laughs> at it, and you weren't enclosed. You just you actually spoke into a microphone, and as the advert said, and when your record popped out, you could actually listen to it. But really, the story goes much further back. It goes back to really the beginning of the gramophone industry. In those early days, there was a passion to actually find a way of presenting and recording the voice because the voice, the voice was quite a spiritual and special thing. It represented the person's soul. And there was an idea of capturing that. And certainly, even before the music industry jumped onto the bandwagon, the early recordings were really about the voice and about sort of presenting the report voice, recording the voice. And then by the early Edwardian times, the most interesting thing about it is that it was they were used for professional reasons. They were office tools. The idea of being able to work in a big office, record memos, letters, and have secretaries write them up. And, of course, the, the only way to do that was find a machine that could do that. So these, it was a very specialist tool. And really what happens is that period between the early 20th century and the 1930s is how to democratise the voice. Because in the early days, most recordings were made professionally, either in the studio like the one we're in now, or at home in very expensive personal recording kits, either on cylinder or later on on gramophone records, and only a few people could afford to buy that kind of equipment. So what happens in the 1930s and why these 1930s discs are so lovely, it's the first time we really hear ordinary people's voices on disc. Amazing. And the connection with the X-Ray Audio Project, from our point of view, is, is that the Soviet bootleggers... They also bootleg this technology, the technology which is used to make your own record in real time, uh, unlike pressing a record, which is the usual way of in the mass production in the recording industry. They got hold of a machine similar to the ones you're talking about. It was actually probably used by a journalist. Um, it was a German machine. And they managed to copy it, to hack it effectively. So that's the, really the connection for us, is that all these X-ray records, uh, they're all made in real time that all sound slightly different than each other they obviously look different than each other because they cut on x-rays but it's the same technology isn't it it is the same technology or it becomes the same technology what is so intriguing about the early years is there was so much experimentation so the very early discs that i've come across are actually not discs as we know it today they're more like postcards and they were created by the french at the beginning of the 20th century and the idea was is you had a little kit um, and it was a postcard with a disc on it and you would cut the disc with a little machine at a horn and you would record into the horn you would speak into the horn it would record your voice onto the disc and then you would send that postcard to a friend or a relative a lover or whatever and this idea was 
the beginning in a way of saying how can we actually sort of harness the voice and pass your message on like a letter, a spoken letter. And unfortunately, the difficulty is, is that that technology was very, very clunky. It didn't work. Um, it didn't take off. It lasted a couple of years and it sort of fell into the it fell into the abyss. And so really what happens is through this period, more and more people are trying to find ways of exploring how to present that this technique and be able to pass and send messages on. So, of course, it's very, very experimental. And in a way, what's so exciting about all of this is that the music industry, in a way, is all experimental. There were no rules. We were all learning at this time and even learning microphone technique, how to speak into a microphone, what to say into a microphone. Um, let's face it, you know, cinema was still in its infancy. The spoken cinema doesn't even happen until the 1920s, late 20s, when you actually hear voices on the screen. Mm. Um, so it's all very rough and ready. And I think that's really exciting. And so by the time in the mid-30s where these coin-operated discs come in, we've gone through lots of experimentation. And hey presto, they found the machine that works. So, Alan, by this time it's entered popular culture rather than be for pro professional people or in the office context. And so these machines, these coin-operated machines, where, did, where were they? I mean, like, where did they appear? The coin-operated machine had two massive phases. The first one was in the 30s, um, and they appeared in department stores. They would appear in ocean liners. And then within a year or two from 1935 to about 1937-8, you would have found them at the end of piers. You would have found them at railway stations, anywhere where people congregated. And the idea was really to get people to stick in their sixpences and record a disc. And um, it was very difficult because, of course, people were not prepared, didn't realise what they could do. They'd never spoken into a microphone before. And just the ability to be able to stand and talk for 30, 40 seconds and not know what to say and to be able to kind of devise a kind of 40 seconds to a minute's worth of material was very difficult. So actually, what is so interesting is it's actually a snapshot of the way we present ourselves in front of a microphone. But what is so interesting is that the naturalistic ones, the certainly the holiday ones where people really don't care as much and they're just going for it because it's a novelty they'll throw their sixpence into the slot and whatever happens whatever happens they're actually some of the best ones because you get that kind of humanity that the soul that the recordists the recording engineers of the 19th early 20th centuries were looking for the soul of people and i think that's what's so wonderful about these recordings these discs became very popular around the world. Certainly, the company that produced the voice discs, uh, the aluminium little sixpenny discs, they were they were sold throughout the the old empire, and you can you could make discs in um, pretty much in lots of different countries around the world. Um, and of course, America had its own ideas and recorded their own types of discs, which we can go on and talk about mm. a bit later. So actually, this technology was moving not only, um, you know, that the experimentation was still going, but what is so interesting is that other countries around the world were doing their own thing with these kind of recordings. Uh, were the advertising discs already uh, recorded or did they record each one as it went along? Double-sided. Good question. They were recorded 
and beforehand. So they were all preloaded. They had a machine in Wembley. There was um, a big 1920s factory called the Hong Kong Works in Wembley. And this is where the company were based, an amusement equipment company. And what they did is they... They produced lots and lots of discs, pre-recorded, and they were sent out to the specific locations where the recordings were made. So, for example, Lewis's in Liverpool, those discs, were, the ad- advert was sent there. There's adverts for um, End of Piers in South End and places like that. There's adverts for cigarettes. There's adverts for restaurants. So the adverts themselves are fascinating because they're a snapshot on the kind of commercial world of the time but of course that was exactly what they did they were all pre-recorded so would it be the same guy you'd hear the same voice advertising chocolate advertising lots of similar voices you do notice about two or three voices and there's a there's a wonderful song which you which you may have or may not called make mine a minor which was a minor was a cigarette and it was actually the voice was uh we've discovered was a chap called bobby comba and bobby was a very well-known musical variety artist of the 30s and obviously got a few bob on the side to do the adverts for voice records excellent well listen just to go the opposite pole from the uh, the advertisement i've got a, i've got a little test here for alan now um alan i would like you to tell us who this is all the clues i'm going to give you is that <clears throat> it was recorded on oxford street not very far from here but not in a, uh, a department store but in hmv which also apparently had a recording machine in there let me play it and see if you can tell us who it is. Tree. I don't think we need to hear that much more of that. It goes on in that vein for some time. Any ideas? Alan? Oh. The timbre, the voice, I recognise it. Um, Stephen, any more little hints, um, clues? Well, he was infamous, uh, put it that way, rather than famous. Right. Uh, became, in fact, one of the most infamous people in the country and was known colloquially, well, he wouldn't guess it from that voice, as the beast, or the great beast, in fact. Trying to blank that. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, it's actually Alice the Crowley. Oh, how interesting. Um, and he recorded that in the HMV store in the 1930s. It yes. was wrongly attributed as being recorded on wax cylinder, but in fact, actually, recorded on, he recorded a series of recordings on, on disc. And that is him reciting the language of the angels, apparently. It's fascinating the fact that so many people like Crowley, who were kind of connected to the arts, literature, music, did make these kind of recordings because even they were fascinated in what their voice sounds like back to them because most people don't know what we actually sound like and it was the first time and a lot of people didn't record professionally but were well known in their own fields like Crowley of course so it was very that's very interesting but of course going back to the kind of in a way what the voice meant and this idea of the voice as a spirit and also a lot of the early recordings there was an idea that you could record the dead 
the past. Mm. And, um, and the, the idea that you could lift the spirits out of the ground in a way through actually sort of capture, the microphone could capture something that we can't hear. All of these ideas were kicking around the 19th century and kicking around the idea of the poss- what the possibilities were of actually capturing sound. So I, I, it, it's in, intriguing and coincidental mm-hmm. that it, it is, um, of course, Crowley. Um, and, 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 and it's so interesting that a lot of people did use these recordings. And, of course, the another commercial avenue for the new recording industry, the fledgling industry, was not only the shops would sell records, but they would offer a facility to record your own voice. And particularly musicians made took it up. And even they had studios where they had a piano or they had um, a couple of instruments available or an area where you could go in with your band and record your one-of-one disc. So that became another popular area as opposed to the coin-operated disc, which is much more rough and ready. And it's a perfect segue because actually we've got some more things from your collection here. I suspect these were recorded in the coin-operated things, but these are some songs. So this is Riley's song from the 1930s from your collection. Where the blues of the night meets the dawn of the day, someone waits for me. I mean, crikey, how much history is packed into that one minute? I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? I mean, beautifully sung. Yeah. I don't know if it's an Irish, is it an Irish song or something? I'm not sure what it is, the folk tune, but he sounds like he's in Liverpool and he's going to head off to Australia, emigrating or something. Is that what's going on there? Or? Yeah, he said he's going to be back in a couple of years. So he, he's most probably got a job out there. Um, and of course, it was the era of the sort of £10 poms. So many people left the industrial north and, and other places to start a new life in Australia. And the, these kind of discs would have been mementos. The, maybe the last time you would have heard a voice. And of course, making a phone call from Australia back to England would have been just so phenomenally prohibitive as far as cost that that disc would have left people, you know, the sound of that person's voice until they got back. And and I think that was very important. And of course, singing was a natural. That was inevitable. That's what people were going to do in these booths because, you know, you could do it. And obviously people had songs in them, the popular song, you know, the kind of the, the Irish song, the pub song, obviously, the, the, the you know, in this case um, is, is obviously from Liverpool where sort of a, a, one of the homes of, of, of songs. So I, I, I think that, it, as you said, it's, it's, it's packed with stuff and I would say it's 1930s. I think it may be an aluminium disc. It might most probably is a voice disc. Amazing quality as well, isn't it? Superb. You know, superb quality. And also, as you were saying earlier, the power of the voice is like the soul of the person captured in a way that a letter never could. Because actually, it's got them in it, isn't it? It's all in there, isn't it? And he's trying to squeeze his message in and his song and it all together. And it's wonderful. Totally. And, and, and also the fact that when he's describing, he's talking afterwards, the, you know, it, it is pretty naturalistic and that's nice it's not a someone you know a lot of people wrote down what they were going to say and in fact actually that is important because in the 90 from the 1920s when the bbc starts broadcasting and the way we would speak in a studio is we would have a prepared set of texts so everything was read 
There was very little naturalism. And that formality continued for many, many decades, actually. Um, and so what is interesting is that when you hear people talking that in a kind of loose, relaxed way, it is unusual and it is, it is so rare. And, and, and so the, these are vital bits of social history, as you say, they are so important. When do you think this kind of radio voice came in? Were people, you say people were running from script. The looseness of that one is beautiful. You can feel their personality. But the quite, quite a few of them are read from a script. When did you think, do you think that was an understanding that it was a, um, a radio voice, for want of a better phrase? Or? Definitely. Um, there was, um, a, 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 shall we say, a received type of radio voice. And the reason why they do stand, sound stilted is because they did exactly that. They imitated the the presenters and the hosts of radio mm. programmers. And so was the posh accent put on? As for... I think people did. People tried to transform their voice into how you should speak to a microphone mm. and in the old days people addressed the microphone if you went into a bbc studio you weren't even allowed in without a tuxedo <laughs> you know the way we're dressed we wouldn't even get it you know we wouldn't get in through the doors you know it was a very important you know it, it was the the pedestal of those people the difference between those people who broadcast and people who had never broadcast was so high it still is to a certain extent but mm. back then it was and obviously the democratization of these discs is very important because it gives people a chance to kind of to, to speak and to capture their voices but but you know what, what you're saying is so important you know that the idea of when we hear that disc how natural it sounds um and, and also what what is so nice about it is that is that when we listen to these recordings, we're listening to something so fleeting. It's, mm. it's that most people most probably won't even remember what they did. It's just a second in their lives. It's, it's just, and, you know, to capture like a photograph, uh, you know, it, 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 it does offer a very, very unusual snapshot of history. <laughs> 